And let me read this passage, which is kind of obscure because the overall flow of the book is so overwhelming to this point. I think uh, people tend to kind of scan these last couple of verses, but there's a lot of really great truth in this passage. So let me read it to you from the New American Standard Bible. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray that the Spirit of God who inspired this text will illuminate to us, and it won't just be information, it'll be transforming truth. I just love this passage, and I hope in about 43 minutes, I can uh, kind of condense it for you and help it make uh, more sense to you maybe. But let's pray for our uh, teachability, for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters, okay? Lord, it's such a great privilege for us to be on this corner, knowing that there are lots of Christians meeting all over the city and this county and this state and this country and this planet ever more and more Christians south of the equator as your great commission is being fulfilled. And we're part of a, a great body of believers that believe in the Savior and the consummator, Jesus Christ. And uh, thank you for letting us have safety in the uh, uh, challenging weather conditions to be able to spend some time in your word together. We can it a great privilege. Uh, we pray that uh, you make us teachable. We pray that it would not be about the teacher, but about teaching. And I pray all of us, including me, can embrace this truth and, and think through it and live it out consistently to your glory. Uh, we pray for those human um, agents you use to protect and serve us. We think of our firefighters and our peace officers locally. We think of our active military. And we pray that you put your hands on them and use them as tools of righteousness um, to your glory. And we thank you for each one of them that are involved directly in their families that support and serve them and serve also. Um, again, thanks, Lord, for letting us have this time together today. We um, greatly appreciate it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I was uh, 
think of the, the day we moved in. I've got a picture of Jamie and Jonathan and the uh, one of the first box boxes we unloaded uh, back on December twenty eighth, nineteen eighty eight, and uh, on the street on the house on Thirteenth Street. There we emptied the first big box, and they had been saying for days they were going to help us uh, unpack and move move in. And of course, as soon as we got the first box empty, they just played in the box for the next three hours. Uh, but I got a picture of that. So I always think of uh, the 28th of December as kind of our anniversary. So uh, by God's grace, um, we just finished 29 years. And so looking forward to another 29 years. Uh, probably not here, but somewhere, you know. Uh, but I thought, you know, uh, since we're about to start a new year, I should probably come up with a resolution or two. So um, after praying about it and surfing the Internet, I decided that... Uh, my uh, New Year's resolution would be, would be to become the ideal pastor, and I found this graphic on the internet so you can know what my target is, so you can pray for me to, to meet these, uh, these goals this year. The ideal pastor has the strength of Samson, the wisdom of Solomon, the courage of David, the patience of Job, the skill of Dr. Luke, the endurance of Moses, and the agility of Zacchaeus. Uh, let's look at the last couple of verses of the Bible as we come to the last hours of this uh, year, 2017. I'm talking about the context and the content of these verses. Uh, this is my basic diagram of Revelation, and I, you know, I always like to say this is this is one way some Christians understand the Book of Revelation. I want to emphasize to you as a service to you. That quite often doesn't happen in pulpits. I think it should. Uh, there, are, no matter what your diagram of Revelation is, Ben, there are a lot of Christians who have a different diagram than you've got, because the details are complicated and they've been variously understood. And I think it's important you know that that you know people that love the Lord just as much as we do, and maybe even more, and have certainly accomplished a lot more for the kingdom than I ever will. Have a different diagram of the Book of Revelation than than I've got. Now, I wouldn't be showing it to you as we talk about the context of the epilogue unless it was my conviction this is essentially correct. But um, I have a feeling probably all of our theologies will be tweaked when we actually get to heaven. But I think it's important to realize that although there are distinct differences amongst Christians on how they understand Bible prophecy, okay, uh, we're really ultimately saying the same thing about the main thing. And let me show you what I mean. Um, the idea that the book of Revelation and the rest of Bible prophecy is saying that Jesus will come back, the same Jesus that died for our sins as the Lamb, will come back as the Lion before a literal millennium. Don't, don't let the word millennium scare you. The word century means what? A hundred years. Decade means ten years. Millennium just means a thousand years. Okay? So, uh, this is called the premillennial interpretation of Bible prophecy, Michelle. Because before a literal millennium, premillennial interpreters believe the second advent will take place before that and lead directly to that. Okay, Now, that is not the majority opinion when you look at church history. The majority opinion is actually a different one. Uh, it's not that one, but the next one I'll show you. So if premillennialism means that before a literal millennium, Jesus comes back, Post-millennialism, not talking post-toasties, that's different, okay? That's a breakfast cereal, believes that after, post means after, right? Because after the postman comes, the mail's in the box, right? Um, after a millennium, now put quotes because uh, we believe in a literal physical millennium where Jesus is reigning and fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies literally. Post-millennialists, post-millennialists, believe that after a kind of a spiritual millennium, that all those Old Testament prophecies are going to be spiritually, allegorically fulfilled as the church fulfills the Great Commission, and then after we get kind of a Christianized world because of world evangelism, then the Second Advent takes place. That's called post because it comes after the millennium. The position, though, that's been, and still to this day, is held by most Christians, not most evangelicals, but most Christians, uh, is called amillennialism because that's the view that, yeah, the Old Testament prophets predicted a literal millennium, but Israel blew it 
Israel blew it, man. The Messiah came and they crucified him. And so those promises have been abrogated by their disbelief. And now the church brings in and enjoys kind of a spiritual millennium, but there's no literal millennium. And just at some point in the future, Jesus is going to come back and end history. So you look at those three diagrams, and if I go back to my Revelation diagram, it's it's premillennial because I'm saying Revelation 19 happens before Revelation 20, and Revelation 20 talks about a 1,000-year millennium six different times. It says that, and the second advent takes place before that. But I want you to know that not everybody holds to those specifics, and I know you, this is too early for a theology lecture, but let me just kind of keep it to on point. You look at this, and some of our skeptical uh, opponents nowadays will say, well, the Christians can't even agree on the details of prophecy. So how in the world can you become a Christian? Because they're all over the map on that. And they are different, but they're not that different. There's a lot of similarities between the few view, three views. Number one, they all believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. They all believe in a literal second advent. Okay, Ken, don't overreact to the differences because there are a lot of similarities, right? They all believe in a church age. They all believe in eternal state. Uh, these differences are real, but they do not exclude the main things. And which is something I say a lot. Uh, the Bible has some things hard to understand, but the main things are plain things, Sherry, and they get repeated a lot. So don't overreact to the fact that we've got different diagrams, okay? But this is kind of my baseline um, diagram from the book of Revelation. And I know everybody's psyched out by the book of Revelation. Forget it, Trey. You don't have to be psyched out. It's not that hard, okay? Chapter 1, the Apostle John's commission to write the book. Chapter 2 and 3, Jesus evaluates the strengths and weaknesses of seven local churches in Turkey that were in existence that John knew personally. So if you want to find out what Jesus likes in churches, where do you go? You can go to Ephesians or Colossians because Paul's writing under inspiration, but Jesus directly tells you what he likes and doesn't like in churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So that's worth the price of the book right there, right? The prophetic part of the book starts in chapter 4 and 5 where John's caught up to see the scene in heaven before the tribulation takes place on earth. The bulk of the book talks about the seven years leading up to the second advent. Chapter 19 talks about the second advent. Big theme in the Old Testament. The powerful, glorious appearing of the Messiah to put down evil and set up a kingdom on the earth. Chapter 20 says there's going to be a kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, and then the new heaven, new earth happen there. Um, now notice, we're looking at the epilogue today, right, Connie? We're looking at verses 6 through 21. So the epilogue and the prologue kind of frame the book. Everybody focuses on that part, and I get it. I love that part. It's all ex- It's really exciting. But we're looking at the passage that kind of frames the book and motivates you to read it. Because, you know, a lot of uh, Christians think they can't understand it, so they're not going to read it. Others think it's not practical, because it's all about stuff that hadn't happened yet, for the most part. And I think the book itself says, read it, and let the implications permeate the way you think about your Christian life, because even if you don't end up living in the end times, the person who's going to consummate the end times is your Savior and your Lord and your best friend and your Redeemer and all those titles we just sang about so beautifully. And he needs to be at the center of your pie chart. And when you break down the passage just in a linear fashion, the passage we're looking at, verses 6 through 21, looks like this. First, in verses 6 through 9, we see the importance and imminence could happen at could begin at any moment of the book's contents based on its divine authority and its divine origin. Then we see a call for the appropriate care or custodianship for the book. Don't detain or seal up or fail to read and be aware of the contents of the book. Then we get this strange passage, which I'll try to explain in a minute, uh, that says things like, go ahead and do whatever you want to. If you want to keep doing the wrong stuff, keep doing it. If you want to be filthy, keep being filthy. That seems like a strange thing. I think that may be some people's favorite Bible verse. <laughs> then we see, and this is so beautiful, man. We get the concluding exhortation of the whole Bible from Christ in verses 12 through 16. Call that I call that the bullseye. He calls believers to fidelity, 
calls unbelievers to faith in him. Then we get uh, another invitation. Only this is not permission to be filthy if you want to. It's persuasion, a call to salvation. Then we have another call for the appropriate care for the book. Only this time, instead of don't detain it, it says don't distort what it says. And then finally, we have a statement in verses 20 and 21 as to the importance and imminence of the contents of the book based on its divine authority and origin. Isn't that amazing, James? All that good stuff in those last couple of verses nobody wants to read because they're overwhelmed by the book, uh, the thrust of the book. But do you see a pattern there? Now, let me let me promise you something, okay? The last time I was privileged to speak from this pulpit two weeks ago, we looked at John 1, 1 through 18, and we said we had this crazy chiastic structure. Here's another one. Now, you, some of you are going to think, oh my goodness, he's going to talk about chiasm every Sunday. No, I won't talk about it again until we bump into another one. But if you look at this thing, we've got, man, we've got this, kind of this inverted parallelism where the very first thing lines up with the very last thing. And the second thing lines up with the second to the last thing. And that's on purpose. And the third thing lines up with the uh, third to the last thing. And then the main thing is in the middle. It's all scripture. It's all important. But you get this structure. It's called a chiasm. And I think most of us think, it helps us to think about it like a staircase that moves toward a emphasized exhortation and away from it. So we're going to do what we did last time. And John, I want to look at these uh, twins together. So let's read verses 6 through 9, and immediately we'll compare that to verses 20 and 21 because of the structure here, if you follow what I'm saying, okay? So let's look at verses 6 through 9 and then verses 20 through 21 because they're kind of paternal twins, as it were. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, he's the same one who sent his angel to show his bondservants these things in the book of Revelation, and they must soon take place. There's a lot of debate about who the he is here. I think in context, it's the revealing angel that's mentioned throughout the book. Go back to chapter 1. Let's see how the book starts in the prologue, and the prologue and the epilogue are kind of like twins too. I've always been fascinated by twins, and now we've been blessed with two sets of twins in our family, and it is a, it's a hoot to watch them, man. It is crazy uh, to watch them. And, uh, you know, Bobby Dudley is a twin. She's got a, a brother who's her twin, and uh, Debbie Corbin's a twin. Who, do we have other twins in the church uh, that you guys remember? Trey, you're a twin? Cool, yeah. I've always thought twins were really, really special. Of course, Trey, you know what? I've been meaning to tell you. You're you're really special, and you're really important. But so is everybody else in the room. So try to get over it, okay? But uh, look at this. We're talking about he said to me, and I think it's this revealing angel who's the he in 22.6. Look at uh, chapter 1. The revelation, apocalypsis means an unveiling, a making plain. This isn't like a hidden thing nobody can understand. It's designed to be basically understood. Revelation Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave him to show to his bondservants, that's you if you're a believer, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel, by this revealing angel to John who wrote it down, who testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Look, this is one of the few books in the Bible that has a special blessing to it. Blessed is he or she, Homer or Pam, um, Sherry or Ben, Debbie or Brad, who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we got this angel in the chain of communication. God the Father, Jesus, the angel, John, you and me reading this. So go back to chapter 22. I take it this revealing angel who in context is mentioned in 21.9, 21.15, He said to me, John, these words are faithful and true. You can depend on them. They're really reliably true. And the same God who inspired the Old Testament prophets, who talked so reliably about the first coming of Christ, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of the second coming, and now we're getting more information about that in this book, Revelation, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Let's talk about that. Uh, Now, it makes sense to us to read they may soon take place because the North Koreans have nukes. The Pakistanis have nukes. 
the Iranians are on a track for nukes. The good news about the Iranians is, and people forget this, but you know, just a few years ago there was this uprising and the State Department decided to do nothing to help except maybe underground. We did a little bit. Uh, the people that are running Iran are old, crusty, pharisaical, radical, jihadist, uh, Shiite Muslims who would love to push a button and eradicate Israel and the United States if they could. But, you know, I, one reason I think that uh, our State Department has been negotiating the way it is is because they feel like the long-term trajectory is the younger generation will not be like the ruling junta that rules it now. And I think that's probably correct. But we're getting a powerful uprising right now among the population in Iran. It's not getting a lot of the, a lot of coverage that it should get. But uh, I've been praying for a long time that, you know, you've got these incredible reports that Jesus is appearing to God-seeking Muslims all over the world. <laughs> like, we're entering the end times to let them know what's going on. And so... Uh, as I believe in miracles, you know, I didn't think anybody'd be here today, and so I'm looking at you guys. It's a miracle, but um, it may just be. Although uh, uh, when you read about, you know, Ezekiel 38, you see Iran as part of the mix against Israel, but it may just be possible there's a, actually a revival going on in Iran, and that's leading to some of this unrest. But it makes sense for us in 2017, almost 2018, to say. Uh, these things are going to soon take place because we can't be very far away from the end times kicking in. Now, I'm so old, I may not actually see it, okay? But I don't think we can be very far away when the North Koreans have nukes, right? So uh, that makes sense to us. But when you realize in context, John's writing this in about 96 A.D., Julie, okay? And that hasn't really been soon. It's 2,000 years ago. So some of our opponents will say, well, see, it's, it's wrong because it's saying it's soon. It wasn't soon. But this is just bad translations, okay? The things which must soon take place. That word soon, which everybody translates soon, isn't an adverb. It's a prepositional phrase. And it's in the original. It's en take. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, I know you're more interested in tacos probably than takes. But en take means with speed or suddenly, okay? Lightning flashes with speed, Okay? Uh, the Lord talks about in the book of Revelation 16, 15, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, not to steal stuff, but without any notice, like when you wouldn't expect it, uh, suddenly, uh, with speed, okay? Nobody calls you at 9 o'clock on a Saturday and says, hey, Chris, I'd like to come and burglarize your house sometime this afternoon. It'll probably be around 2.30 p.m., so just thought, thought I'd let you know. They don't operate like that. They show up when you don't expect them and hopefully when you're not home, right, kind of thing. So this doesn't mean soon. That's an adverb. It means suddenly, uh, rapidly when it happens. And the linchpin that starts all the prophetic stuff in the book of Revelation is the rapture of the church, Revelation 4 and 5. It's an imminent event. It could happen at any moment, but it might not happen for another thousand years. Now, I'm not a betting man very often unless... Uh, once a year, you know, James and I go to the Colt R.S. meeting in Reno, uh, and so we, you know, put some money on black, like, uh, Olga sometimes does too. But, uh, right, put some money on black. Black wins like, what, 49% of the time, which is the casino edge. You know, they always have an edge on you. But, uh, I doubt that human history is going to go on another thousand years, but I do know the end times have been from the beginning of the church age through now, imminent. Could happen at any moment, and when the rapture happens, which kicks it off, it'll happen suddenly, like a thief in the night, with speed, without any warning kind of thing. That's what you're going to see consistently with this nomenclature here. So don't let that argument that he said soon, it's 2,000 years later, that's not really a valid argument, okay? Go back to verse 7. Now we have a direct quote from the Lord Jesus here, either being cited by the angel or maybe the Lord breaks through to John and just says this, but this is Jesus speaking in verse 7 for sure, regardless of whether the angel is speaking in verse 6. Behold, I am coming quickly. Okay? Um, I'm coming suddenly without warning. That's, that's just, that is an adverb there, taku. And take was the previous thing back in the first part of that verse, verse 6. But again, it means the same thing, suddenly without warning. I'm coming suddenly without warning. Rapture event will kick off and begin the end times. 
Uh, blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy, the implications of the prophecy of this book. So don't let the delay make you think it's not going to happen, because it will happen. I, John, the apostle, the last living apostle, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. Now watch this. John receives all this information verbally and visually, I should say, and uh, through audio also. And it's an amazing thing. You've got a first century man looking at 21st century events, and so he uses first century nomenclature. One of the uh, events of the Revelation, uh, the, the sixth seal, John says, I saw the, uh, the sky rolled up like a scroll. Now that sounds to me like a mushroom cloud, possibly. That sounds to me like a thermonuclear explosion. But you've got a first century man seeing that. And that's, by the way, that's right before the second advent. So it's not, the raptures hasn't happened yet. So we're at least seven years away from the second advent. But Peg, you, you're seeing John as a first century apostle describing events that are going to take place, I think, in the 21st century, uh, using his terminology. And it's really interesting when you, when you see that kind of stuff. But he's saying, look, I saw and heard this stuff. I, and I actually think John was probably transported through time and space. I don't know how to do that, but I know it's possible based on Einsteinian physics. You can actually move through time. We just haven't figured out how to do it yet. And I think John is a guy who actually got transported, saw this thing, and said, I've seen this. I know it's hard to believe. It's far-fetched. But also I've seen the risen Christ, so I know he can do anything. I uh, have seen and heard these things. And when I heard and saw the overall thrust of this book, he was overwhelmed, and he did... The wrong thing here. I fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Why, why is that a problem? Because you're not supposed to worship angels. You're certainly not supposed to worship preachers. It, it bothers me when we have this cult of celebrity Christian preachers. Uh, and you might think, well, that's because you uh, you want to be like them. Yeah, you, with my good looks and charisma, I can't believe that I'm not one of those people. You know, right? So I resent that. I don't resent anybody's success. I resent when people like worship Protestant preachers. It's one thing for Catholics to almost worship certain people in their hierarchy. They're almost trained to do that in some cases. For, for people to worship, a good thing around here, and Ron will tell you, that's not a big temptation around here, which is probably one of our strengths, right? But, um, and you, hey, I would just say, uh, no great man has ever appreciated while he's still alive, so avoid the rush, appreciate me now. But uh, uh, John is worshiping an angel, and that's a bad thing. And it's almost, to me, it's almost funny because it's almost like the angel's saying, don't do that. We're both going to get in trouble. You know, he can't, this angel cannot accept this without correcting him. It's, I hate to correct you, man, but I know you're the last living apostle. Uh, I know you were Jesus' best friend, but don't do that. Are you kidding? You're going to get us both in trouble. I'm just a fellow servant of yours, you know. I'm just a different order, but I'm, I'm just I'm not a worship uh, object uh, of your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of the book. Worship God. The Greek text has God worship to emphasize that. Now, the interesting thing about this is, this is the at least the second time he's done this. Go back to John 19. Real Christians can't continually sin and have issues where they continue to trip over the same thing. Increasingly, our hard Calvinistic preachers are preaching that. That's absurd. Okay, you tell me no Christians have bad habits. I've got bad habits. I know good and well you've got bad habits. Okay, um, I get very frustrated when I miss short putts. That's just me. Okay, and I've missed really short putts when they matter. I mean, really short. I mean, like less than twelve inches. I've jerked twelve inches. I mean, really, I've, I've missed putts that short. You know, uh, and it's 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 not any fun. But watch this, nineteen verse ten. Uh, again, after seeing this vision, and I think he's in actually in the time frame seeing the second advent of Christ. I think he actually saw the event before it happened, time travel. Uh, he fell at the feet. John said, I fell at the feet uh, of this angel who showed me this thing. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Does that sound familiar? Um, uh, and your brother and hold testimony of Jesus. Uh, worship God. And then he says this incredible thing. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, or flip it around, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It, there are certain Christians who are too cool to care about Bible prophecy. And it kind of goes like this. We know Jesus is going to come back. 
Nobody knows when, and there's at least three different views. And it actually gets worse than that, because all those three views I showed you have sub-views, you know. Since nobody agrees on all the details, I'm just not going to get interested in Bible prophecy. But that's not a good plan, Connie, because it says here, in a clear passage, that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It's important that we are familiar with Bible prophecy because it encourages us to do the right thing and realize he's going to win in the end, and it, sometimes it doesn't look like he's winning. It doesn't look like he's going to win. You know? Go back to chapter 22. So my point is, chapter 19, he worships this angel. Chapter 22, he worships this angel. And if you gave him more chances, he'd probably do it again. It's such an overwhelming experience, and these angels are so awesome in their appearance you can almost understand why he'd be tempted to do it, but it's not an explanation. I mean, it's not an excuse. It's more of an explanation. But yeah, Christians can keep doing the same thing every time it's wrong, which is a problem, you know, but you've got to become aware of your tendencies. And I always tell people, because I don't know any kleptomaniacs in this church that I'm aware of, although, you know, I used to think I was unshockable. That'll probably happen this year. I'll find out three of you are kleptomaniacs. But um you know, if you're a kleptomaniac, don't go to Walmart by yourself. That's how easy that is. I mean, if you can't get anybody else, me or James will take you, you know? Uh, now, Stephanie doesn't remember this, but I remember right after the new Super Walmart, op- Walmart opened, she was just a young child. We went in there, and she was standing there. Uh, Janice, where you were, I'm not sure, but she was just standing right near the front door, and you were just probably around the corner, and you were just like beaming. You looked so happy. And I said, what do you think about the new Walmart? Because it was a pretty cool thing at the time. And you literally said, you just kind of shook. You said, it's fun. <laughs> that was the exact quote, you know. And she didn't remember that. I think it's a psychological mechanism. She's forgotten it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you get these overwhelming experiences, and it's an awesome thing. So we're getting the divine Authority of the book emphasized, this is important. You may not understand all the details, and some Christians have different diagrams than Pastor Brad has, but that's okay. You need to be aware of the fact, and very, in a practical way, banking on the fact that Jesus is going to win, and uh, we're on the winning side, okay? Now let's look at verse is verses, uh, you know, drop down to verse 20 and 21. That's its, its twin. And that is, in verses 6 through 9, probably one of the most stirring things that's said is the quote from the Lord Jesus, I am coming with speed. It is going to happen at the right time, even if it's 2,000 years after he writes this. But boom, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen. Blessed is the one who heeds the heed. Blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy of the book. And when you go to the fraternal twin, verse 2021, 20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. Why is he repeating himself? Hey, Ron, you know what? Repetition's the mother of retention. Uh, I remember one time I did a message on Ecclesiastes and, you know, in Ecclesiastes, the term under the sun is used like 77 times to say under the sun. If you just live like now is all there is, you're going to be depressed and demoralized because it's things don't add up. And I had a visitor who never came back come up right after I was done. And that's that can be really good or really bad. And when a visitor comes up right after I'm done, they either really liked it or didn't didn't like it at all. And I've had both reactions. And the guy goes, you said under under the sun about 27 times in that message. And I went, yeah, because Solomon says it 77 times. I wanted to emphasize it like he did. Oh, okay, and walked off. So you're going, yeah, I had a reason. You know, sometimes I have a reason for the, these quirks. You know, there's a method to the madness. Sometimes, not always. But just notice, this is repetition because repetition helps you remember stuff. So I don't apologize for repeating because the Bible does it all the time. John says, Amen, so be it. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Okay, that's that first set of twins. Now let's look at this warning about detaining or distorting this this uh, call for the appropriate care, custodianship of this content of this book. Look at verse 10. Uh, and he said to me, this is the revealing angel, I believe, in context, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't put it on a shelf. Don't act like it's not as important as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it is just as important. It tells you how it all is going to work out. For the time is near. Agus means imminent, impending, overhanging, could start at any moment. Then drop over to verse 18 and 19. So verse 10 is saying, as far as custodianship of the book, don't seal it up. Don't detain it. Don't put it on a shelf. Don't ignore it. Now verse 18 19 are saying don't distort it. 
And I don't think all millennials are distorting it. I think they're grappling with it. But people who distort the obvious implications that Jesus is going to win, he came the first time as the lamb, he's the issue of salvation, he's going to consummate human history. Anybody who would deny that is doing what 18 or 19 says not to do. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if you add to that, add to them, and I say Jehovah's Witnesses clearly add to this book. And they end up places where the book doesn't take you. I think that would be uh, an example of that. Much less Richard Dawkins or somebody who doesn't believe any of it. Anyone adds to them, God will add to them the prophecies. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, this is not a scribe that accidentally leaves a word out in an ancient manuscript. This is somebody who uh, consciously, deliberately distorts and denies as an unbeliever. That kind of thing, I think, is what we're talking about there. Okay, So this is important stuff, and it shouldn't be detained or distorted. Now look at verse 11. We have this curious invitation. It's more of a permission for unbelievers to do whatever they want to do. You know, God's made uh, this a moral universe where human beings make real choices. If every time somebody wrote an atheistic thought, their pen exploded. If every time somebody wanted to try to rob a bank, their gun dissolved, you wouldn't have a moral universe. You'd have people kind of forced to run through a maze and not do stuff they really want to do. God set up this moral world where people will do bad things, and bad things happen even to good people. And so don't see this as a command, as more of a permission. It's like a justive, you know, as opposed to a, uh, an uh, imperative. Let the one who does wrong in light of the book, in light of who Jesus reveals himself to be in this book, if you want to ignore that or act like you don't uh, want to deal with it and you just want to do whatever you want to do to whomever you want to do it to, then go ahead. Um, you, you've got the permission uh, to sow your wild oats if you want to. Um, and let the one who's filthy still be filthy. If you're going to ignore the implications and the truth of this book and who Jesus is, you can do what you want to do for a season. On the other hand, let the one who's righteous... Let the uh, uh, Wolfgang Diggs hang in there. Keep doing the right thing. Let the one who's holy keep himself holy. And when you go from verse 11 to its twin, because we're looking at that literary structure, look at verse 17. Verse 11 is balanced by verse 17. This isn't God promoting evil. It's him permitting evil without forcing evil people you know, to be robots or just kind of forcing them uh, to grudgingly do the right thing. Uh, this is, uh, again, this is kind of an invitation now to salvation for anyone, right? Uh, Spirit, Holy Spirit, the bride, the local, the New Testament church say, come. And what do you mean by that? Well, it almost sounds like, come Lord Jesus. But in this context, I think you've got to let the next statement tell you. And let the one who hears, let the, the reader who's not yet a bully, or the one who hears like, one of us who's already believers say to those who haven't received Christ yet, come. Now here's the invitation. Let the one who is thirsty, let the one who is convicted of their sin and their need and their inability to save themselves, let them come to Christ in faith. In other words, let the one who wishes. Uh-oh. We talked about Calvinism the other day, didn't we? Okay. This says the one who wishes can come. Okay. Almost sounds like whosoever will may come, maybe. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Where do we see the, who uses that as a figure of speech? I know Isaiah uses it, but who in the New Testament uses water of life as a symbol for eternal life? Would that be the Lord Jesus multiple times in the Gospel of John? Who's the human author of Revelation? John, you know, he's very familiar with that. Uh, let the one who's thirsty, who senses their need. Now watch this. you got to be thirsty to get saved. You've got to realize you're a sinner to be saved. If you're getting the the message of Christianity is just it's kind of a philosophy of life, live a nice moral life, and God grades on a curve, and if you're better than most people, you go to heaven, that's not what Christianity teaches. That may be what some people claim to be Christians, believe and teach. That's not what Christianity teaches, right? All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. It's always salvation is something God does for us. It's not something we do for God. All this great stuff we do for God is the fruit, is an effect, and he gets the credit for that, 
as Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should continue in them. So you get this odd permission in verse 11, but in context it makes sense, balanced by this call to those folks who are filthy and are doing wrong to come to Christ and take the free gift. And again, this isn't me as Dallas Seminary guy reading this into this thing. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Okay? Discipleship costs you everything, but that's an effect of salvation. Salvation is without cost. It says so here. And let's not front load the gospel with a bunch of stuff we want to see people do after they come to faith. Let's let them have the same invitation the woman at the well had, who had been unfaithful five times and was living with her boyfriend now. He says, if you just ask me for it, I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you living water. So to me, if verse 11 seems strange to you, realize that God permits, but he doesn't promote evil. But at the same time, he calls even the worst person and even the most righteous unbeliever who thinks they can earn salvation to come and receive Salvation is a gift based on the work of Christ. Now let's look at the next set of twins here. And I guess we just did that, didn't we? Looked at uh, verse 11 and 17. Well, let's go to the most important part of this passage. It's all great. But I love this section, Carol, 12 through 16. It's incredible. The Lord Jesus is talking to us here. And let's look at that. We're going to turn that into white at the bottom to emphasize it. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. We've seen that again. Quickly. Right? Suddenly, without warning when it happens, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. Uh Uh-oh, Brad. Contradiction in the Bible. I thought you said salvation is without cost, but here we're told every person is going to be judged according to their works. How do you put that together? Well, let me suggest there's actually a simple way to do that. Salvation is on the left side of that vertical line, Always by grace through faith in the work of Christ. But to the one who does not work, work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. But within the set of believers and the set of unbelievers, there will be a judgment and evaluation based on works for believers, for our differing levels of reward and commendation, for unbelievers, differing levels of reproach and condemnation. Hitler is there. Okay, right? There's not is not going to be a same level of uh, condemnation for everybody. They'll be judged based on the light that they rejected and whatever they did with whatever time and ability and uh, opportunity they had. But for us, on the positive side, there are levels of reward. And trust me, for those Christians that are worshiping all these celebrity pastors, some of those guys are going to be down here somewhere, probably. Now, I just judged somebody. I guess I moved down here, didn't I? Um, that's not my call, is it? But I got a feeling you've got people like, oh, I don't know, Gene Shalit and Pam Cox and, uh, and I, it's not up to me, okay? So don't write this down, okay? It, it may change, you know. Olga, they're gonna be up here. James and I will be down here somewhere. And of course, Ron will be right, right there. <laughs> right? Now they're gonna be, of course, everybody gets judged according to works in the, the appropriate category. In that context, this is evaluation. Salvation isn't probation. Evaluation isn't salvation either. Okay, We're not talking about residence eternally. We're talking about rewards or condemnation eternally. Once you understand that, it just unlocks so much of the Scripture, and so many groups want to overlap that and say, well, it's without cost, but it really costs you everything, and uh, it's free, but it's also based on your works. That's one plus one can't equal eight. It just doesn't, okay? And so just beware of those things. I don't care who says it, even if they're famous and have books that somebody else wrote for them. And all these famous Christian authors don't actually write their stuff, you know. You get a ghostwriter who listens to their stuff that somebody else kind of prepared, and they write a book, and they... I I don't resent it, but it's it's not that I'm not unaware of it. I'm aware of these things, okay? Just so you'll know. Uh, But it's out there. But keep going. Uh, I'm the Alpha and Omega. What's that? First and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That's just kind of... I'm the creator and the consummator. In John 1, we saw that all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. And Revelation says he's going to consummate history and rule over post-history, eternity. 
So that's Jesus, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, those who were thirsty and received the water of life. To wash your robes is to receive the redeeming work of Christ through active, receptive trust. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. It's my fault. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They may have right to the tree of life. This talked about in Revelation 21 and 22 earlier. And may enter into the gates of the new Jerusalem. Incredible, you know. Never been to New York City myself. I have no desire to go. I know some of you have gone and love it. God bless you. I have been to Mofrock, Jordan. And trust me, you don't want to go there. (laughs) But... uh, New York City scares me, okay? I'd go to Mofrock, Jordan before I'd go to New York City. That's just me, okay? Uh, and I'm an old guy now, and I'm not going, you know? I'm not going to eat broccoli either anymore, so just so you know. <laughs> There's just, I'm not doing it, you know? Um, but, yeah. Uh, but the New Jerusalem is going to, if you haven't been able to go to the big city, to Paris or whatever, I've been to Paris, <laughs> but uh, we're all going to, through God's grace, be citizens of the New Jerusalem. But outside... Are the dogs now, Nancy? This isn't an indictment against dog ownership. For for the for Semitic mind, a dog was a bad word for people who were bizarre and perverted. So it's kind of a personalization because dogs in that nomadic culture were typically, you know, they either uh, were just varmints that come in and steal food from you, or they might be rabid and bite your children, and, and they would die of that horrible disease. So they didn't really have dogs as pets in that culture, which doesn't mean it's it's biblically wrong to have a dog as a pet. But outside of the dogs, human beings that have refused the grace of God and do all kinds of bizarre things, and some of the worst things maybe they do are to be into sorcery, spiritism, demonic kind of stuff, uh, grossly immoral, murderers, idolaters. Now, everyone who loves and practices lying, that's a little bit tempting, I mean, a little bit convicting, because we probably all told a lie here or there. But it's very important to read passages like that. And back in chapter 21, go back to chapter 21 of Revelation real quick. You see a similar kind of statement. I'll show you kind of how you understand this in context here in a second. But look at this. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 6 through 8 real quickly. And again, while you're turning there, let me read what uh, he says here. Outside of the New Jerusalem and the eternal state are all those unbelieving humans that could be characterized generally as doing all these horrible things. But look what we have here in Revelation 21, 6 through 8. Then he said to me, it is done. My purpose for permitting evil is finished now that we've started eternity in that context. I'm the Alpha and Omega. Sound familiar? Beginning and end. Sound familiar? I'll give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. You hear about repetition? Okay. You got Jesus twice in three chapters, in two chapters saying salvation is without cost because I paid for all of it. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, but then we want people to kind of, you know, front load the gospel with doing this, signing cards and all this kind of crazy stuff that can actually cause people not to see it. He who overcomes, to overcome means to believe Jesus is the Christ. First John 5 says that in detail. We'll inherit these things. I'll be as God. He'll be my son. But for the cowardly, as opposed to overcoming the world and actually trusting Christ, you just explain them away or ignore them or whatever you do. That's cowardly. And the unbelieving. So he clearly talking about unbelievers. And then he lists all these horrible things. Abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers. Sounds familiar? Same kind of list. It's called a vice list in technical study. Idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire. So what do you do with that? Because you know, if you look closely at Scripture, Abraham lied about his wife several times, knowing that somebody might end up having intercourse with her, but he'd rather lie and say he was a sister, he was, that was his sister than his wife because he thought they might whack him if he thought he was married. That's Abraham, okay? And where Jesus tells us Abraham's in heaven, so he, he made it. Isaac, Jacob, Lot, who said righteous, called righteous Lot. You can't find a good thing he does in Genesis, but Jude says he's righteous because of his standing. Moses, David, David never lied. Lied about, you know, his adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had her husband whacked. You know, he murdered. So I guess he's, but Jesus says he's in heaven. So I guess he probably is, right? Rahab, she was a prostitute. And more importantly, Brad McCoy. I've done some of this stuff too. Here's what it is, you know. Uh, we're talking about 
all unsaved liars, murderers, sorcerers, idolaters, all unforgiven liars. Those vice lists are describing unregenerate liars. Abraham was a regenerate liar, okay? Right? That's what it means, okay? And I think the Revelation 21 passage makes it really clear because he says outside are the... Uh, the dogs, this, I'm at 21, look at 22, because he says, um, but for the cowardly, because they don't overcome the world by trusting in Christ, that is the unbelieving. They just refuse to trust Christ as Savior, and they list their vices again. So just realize, those kind of vice lists are just talking about unsaved liars, okay? Uh, you're looking at me like I shot your dog, but that's what it means, Okay? Because otherwise he's teaching salvation by works and that's, that's not possible. And like I said, just to, listen, everybody in the Bible except for Jesus is really dysfunctional. You realize that, Trey? Which is great because everybody in this room is pretty dysfunctional too. And especially the pastor, right? So you need to remember that. God can use all kinds of flawed raw material, human raw material to accomplish his purposes by his grace. Okay? Go back to 22. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel, that revealing angel, that's a big part of this, to testify to you these things for the churches. The book of Revelation is primarily for the churches, so we'll be prepared for the end times and understand and be prioritized, um, have Christ right at the center of our pie chart. I'm the root and the descendant of David, his creator and his son, humanly speaking, Bright morning star, that's Venus, which in the Middle East for much of the year appears just before the sun comes up and the full glory of the day comes up. So Jesus will appear at the rapture just before the end times, which leads to the second advent and the climax of all of that. And then we saw our 17 already. Boom. Got to love this, folks. We just did a lot of living there. I tell you what. But let me wrap this up. Notice verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels. I'm the root and descendant of David. You know, I love this little diagram because uh, this is uh, one of the most important full titles for our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord corresponds to the Old Testament word for God. Christ means Savior, and Jesus means God's Savior. Yeshua, that's just what the word means. So you got repetition there. But we're talking about the exaltation of Christ, not preachers or programs. Uh, what's that? Yeah, this is... Uh, since probably the third century, if not before, this has been one of the early symbols for Christianity. Now, you, it looks like an X with a P, right? It looks like an X'd out P. But it's not that. We've talked about chiasm, right? Uh, when you look at the term for Christ, what's that? Mike, that's not an X, is it? What is that? That's the Greek letter key, which is the CH sound. Now, that looks like a P, doesn't it, Ben? But that's an R. That's a row in Greek. So when you put the the key, boom, boom, and the row, the first two letters for Christ on top of each other is called the Cairo. It's just a symbol for Christ. Now, what's that? Oh, my goodness. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Right, Carol? There's the Alpha. There's the Omega. Those are capital. Usually we use lowercase in Greek. But what's that? That's Aleph. That's Tav. Aleph's the first letter in Hebrew. Last letter. Now, hey, Trey, why do we go right to left with Greek, Alpha and Omega, and... Uh, left or right, I should say. Don't, don't go by what I say, especially when I'm hurrying, right? Left or right, like we, English, and then right to left on Hebrew. Why do you do that? Because that's the way you write Hebrew, right? There's the first letter, it's the last letter. So that's kind of an orna, kind of a fancier Cairo. But uh, I always love that. And, uh, you know, you go to a Presbyterian church, you, you might, you, you see the Cairo in the Presbyterian church typically? Uh, Episcopalian church will have that. Certainly Roman Catholic churches will use that. Uh, and sometimes evangelicals, we tend to think the, the world started, you know, in 1923 when Dallas Seminary started or something. But actually, the guy's been using the church for 2,000 years. But I always love that. So take this to heart and into the new year, if you don't mind, and really if you do. Uh, the end of this year leads directly to the beginning of the new one. And, uh, you know, every day is the first day of the rest of your life. But as we enter this new year... I think that last statement there in verse 20, even so, come Lord Jesus, uh, should be something we think about seriously. Because you might say, well, no, we're at least seven years away from the second advent. Even the rapture would have happened this afternoon, so I'm not going to get too excited about that. Well, you know, you could drop dead today, you know. 
uh, I've got this thing where my esophagus clamps down on food sometimes. When I eat too much, I had to have my esophagus stretched. And the first time that happened, I was driving to church one morning. I was right near uh, uh, Will Rogers School, and I had this incredible pain in the middle of my chest. And I really thought I was having a heart attack. And I pulled over, and I, I just my life was passing in front of my eyes. I thought, what's Debbie going to think when she finds out I'm dropping dead here in front of Will Rogers? I mean, why not do it in front of Horace Mann? It'd be so much easier for um, i got a weird sense of humor. And then I thought, well, as much as this hurt, I really thought, Lord, just take me, because this hurts so badly. I do not want to tolerate this anymore. And I tend to think I've got a high threshold for pain. James will deny that, but really. Uh, um, but I really thought I was going to die of a heart attack. And then it kind of got a little bit better. I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to drive to the hospital, just like James Dobson did when he had his first heart attack. He drove to the hospital, which you're not supposed to do. But I thought, well, maybe I'll get faster service that way. Cause my phone had run down. You know, I didn't have a phone. And then it kind of went away and stuff. But I mean, um, I used to think I was kind of almost bulletproof, but, uh, so many of my friends, uh, are leaving me. I've, I've realized I'm not either. So I've always thought, um, one of the arguments that's been used against the understanding of imminency that the end times could start at any moment by the rapture event is, well, that's not fair because God knew it wasn't going to happen until at least 2017. So why is he giving us this imminent stuff? Because your physical life has an imminent ending period. And it could be five minutes from now. I hope it doesn't happen to you, Steve. I hope, I hope to see you next year. Like tomorrow? Or, or maybe not tomorrow, but like in a couple of days. But I mean, we ought to be living with that uh, not in a morbid sense, expectancy anyway. So uh, I think the idea whether the Lord comes for us in the rapture or takes us home through physical death, we need, I mean, you know, when you lose your sister, when you lose your husband, you, you realize death is a real thing, you know? And it doesn't, it's not like it's going to happen for us in 95 at, at a time that's comfortable for us and our family. It, you know, it's an X factor. So I think, uh, you know, as you think about the end of the new old year, beginning of a new one, it can cause you to give some motivation uh, to kind of realize that, hey, you know, I really ought to live like this and not like this. And so many American Christians feel like, you know, I come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, and that's when I'm a Christian, and the rest of the time is mine. As long as I don't murder or rape or pillage anybody, I'm, I'm fine. But because of who and what Jesus is, that's the only legitimate way to live your Christian life. And it's not just for missionaries and song leaders and for pastors. It's for everybody. And I think that's the essence of the book of Revelation. It's saying, hey, get yourself centered on the Savior consummator, and then you can have a normal spiritual walk and not a limp. So uh, I always like these fill-in-the-blanks that I never make you sign, you know. But as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I, your name... In my case, Brad McCoy, pre-decide to embrace the opportunities and tackle, and there'll be opportunities in the next year and challenges too, with a renewed anticipation of prioritizing my Savior. If you've been playing around here, now's a great time to get it just back to where it needs to be. It's centered on Christ, your Savior and consummator. Uh, commit to live day by day with a positive approach to doing good things slash hard things. You need to do some hard things in life. It's, you know, we'll go to the, me and Ken will go to the Simmons Center next week, and suddenly the parking lot's full. Everybody's in that exercise room, you know, because they're all going to, uh, you know, for a whole week they exercise and they get sore and then they stop coming. But give them a week and it'll be back to just three people on the on the machines again, you know. Uh, you see that every single year. But this idea that if you're right in the middle of God, God's will, everything's easy. Who's that? Who ever said that? I mean, you got to do hard things. You know, it's not easy to pray. Uh, intentionally with great focus day after day after day using the same prayer. Just, that's not easy to do. A lot of people don't do it. But if you want to get results the average person doesn't get, you've got to do things the average person doesn't do. This idea that I'm just going to be average. Who wants to be average? You know, Give it the best you've got. And you may, I don't have the talents James has or a lot of pastors I'm aware of, but I kind of do the best with what I've got. And you can too. We all can. But I need this message as much as anybody because I can kind of slip into that too. So I think prophecy should uh, motivate us to get centered on uh, the person that prophecy is all about. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the blessings of this past year. And I know a lot of people have had a very difficult year. But you've gotten us through 
364 and a half, 365ths of it, and we, we give you praise for that. Help us to seriously renew our commitment with this new year. Some of us are getting older and stiffer and tireder, and maybe it's easy for us to start uh, going half speed. But to the extent we've got anything to give, help us just to put it on the line for our Lord Jesus this year. And I pray that uh, just a fast review of the big picture of Revelation will motivate us to do that. Um, and I thank you for everyone who's here today. I thank you for uh, the blessing of uh, seeing your grace dynamics in this church unfold for 29 years. And I pray that you might be pleased uh, over its longer 40-year-plus history. But I thank you for the way you've sustained us, provided for us, uh, despite the, the frailties of uh, the pastors and the staff and, and really all of us. And yet you've uh, uh, kind of knitted this thing together in, in many beautiful ways. And we've had a few dark spots on the canvas too here and there. But we give you praise for the miracle that this church is, and really every church in this town, I'm sure, has its stories and its, its examples of your amazing uh, supernatural direction and provision. And so we know we're not unique in that. Uh, excite us about the prospect that uh, the rapture could take place at any moment, that as the predictions about the North Koreans and other uh, evil players become more dire, that you're not unaware of all of those machinations and all of those plans, and that your purpose will transcend and trump every single thing that ISIS can come up with, or that uh, uh, Boko Haram can come again, or Hamas or Hezbollah, or these other groups that are plotting our demise with anthrax or atomic bombs or whatever it is. So help us to be encouraged, <laughs> despite the... Uh, the fact the outlook is very, very bleak. The outlook is always glorious. So encourage us, you know, to walk through the threshold of this new year with a positive Christian hope and an expectation to really do some great things uh, for you and through you and for you. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen.